Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. Hi, I'm Hyan Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. As an extension of the Childhood Art Speaker Series, the Childhood Art Podcast uses the format of a follow-up conversation to center the practices of leading scholar practitioners with special attention given to the untold and perhaps understated interests, connections, and experiences that shape their work. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Brent Wilson, who was recently named the inaugural recipient of the CSCA's Christine Marmy Thompson Distinguished Research Award. International in scope, the Christine Marmy Thompson Distinguished Research Award recognizes a scholar in art education or related field whose research has made significant and impactful contributions to the study of childhood art. It is not only an honor to be able to recognize Dr. Wilson with this award and to spend some time today speaking with him about his life and experience and his scholarship and accomplishments. We also have the added privilege of sharing in this exchange with Dr. Christine Marmy Thompson, whom the award is named after. As such, a warm welcome to Tina and our sincere thanks for agreeing to join us today. Thank you. You're very welcome, Chris. It's wonderful to be here. Before we begin, though, I'd like to take a moment to introduce our guest, Dr. Brent Wilson. Brent is Pennsylvania State University School of Visual Art Education Professor Emeritus. His research includes studies of visual culture, influences on children's artistic development, and self-initiated drawings cross-cultural studies of children's visual storytelling, Japanese and Taiwanese teenagers, the Jinshi, manga clubs and comic markets, studies of children's interpretations of artworks, the evaluation of art educational outcomes, internet, visual ethnography, pedagogical theory, and formal and informal pedagogical practices. He delivered the National Art Education Association Studies Lecture in 1983, was elected an NAEA Distinguished Fellow in 1988, the NAEA Art Educator, Educator of the Year, 1989, received the NAEA Lowenfeld Award, 1993, and the NAEA Eisner Lifetime Achievement Award in 2017. He received the U.S. Society for Education Through Art Edwin Ziegfeld Award, 1991, and was invited to deliver the International Society for Education Through Art Edwin Ziegfeld keynote lecture in Osaka, 2008. He keeps visual journals, makes and exhibits art books and folios. On behalf of the Childhood Art and the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas, it is a pleasure that I extend this warm welcome to our distinguished guest, Dr. Brent Wilson. Welcome, Brent. Well, thank you so very much. <laughs> we thought we'd open with a, a question today from Tina. Okay, Brent. First of all, I just want to take the moment to say um, what an exceptional privilege it's been to follow you <laughs> throughout my career and, and first to Iowa and much later to Penn State, where we were colleagues all too briefly. Um, we've shared so much over the years, beginning with the Stumbo children uh, <laughs> back in the uh, mid-70s when they were my students and participants in your research. But one of the things I've always admired about you so greatly um, is the deep and unflagging respect that you have for children and their cultural productions. Could you begin today by talking a little bit about your own beginnings 
as someone who experienced art making at home and at school in Utah, and how these experiences led to your understanding of play art, school art, and the impact of what you describe as various pedagogical sites on children's drawing. Wow. <laughs> now, that, uh, I could take about four hours to do that. But let me tell you uh, very briefly, I mean, we'll make it a, try to make it a short story. Currently, I'm working on a series of folios called uh, Sandhill House. And in 1937, at the height of the Depression, my father built a two-room home for himself, my mother and I, at the foot of a sand hill. It was actually my grandfather Whittle's pasture in Idaho. And it was in Sand Hill House that I discovered the Sunday funny papers. I explored the sand hill, uh, walking, uh, chasing jackrabbits up through the sand hill, uh, across a fence. Uh, this was a half mile away. And this was when I was four years old. Uh, and I was punished for running away, but I crossed two fences, a road and two fences to some sand dunes where I picked up uh, obsidian chips, flakes that a Shoshone arrow maker had made, and I actually found uh, an arrowhead. Well, I have been running through, I mean, it was the books that my mother read to me, Child's Gardener versus Mother Goose books. I found a Sonia Henney coloring book in the little tiny bookcase in that little two-room home. I mean, everything that my life has become, uh, and I've only touched on a couple of things that popped into my mind, began in Sand Hill House. Well, <clears throat> we were only there for uh, like two and a half years or so, moved into my grandmother's house. My grandfather had died. And uh, then, uh, well, I'm preparing an exhibition uh, it's Masami Toku who has invited me to show my folios in Amami at the Aisen Tanaka Memorial Art Museum in Amami this summer. And I've done 10 sets of folios uh, for the 10 decades of my life. But let's jump quickly from uh, the, the time in Fairview, Idaho, swimming in Bear River to Preston High School, where I decided that I would not be <laughs> join my friends in the future farmers of America. I, I, I grew up on a dairy farm and I started taking uh, art classes in uh, 1949, actually. The, my art teacher, uh, Lyle Shipley, was not really an art, well, he was an art teacher. He was assigned the art class, but he was the music teacher. Uh, there wasn't his wife had majored in art, and I think they sort of collaborated on what assignments to give to the kids. But in 1950, with the Boy Scouts headed for the National Jamboree at Valley Forge, we stopped in New York City, and I bought a book, Emily Janauer's The Best of Art. She reviewed the 50 art exhibitions in New York City in 1947. And it was an introduction to every significant contemporary painter. Uh, Stuart Davis, uh, Tanguy, uh, they were all there. And 
I, I took the book back to Idaho and to showed it to my art teacher and said, I want to paint like this. He said, okay, go to it. And I moved into the storeroom, which sounds terrible, but it was, uh, this was an old 19th century building with lovely bay windows and the storeroom uh, was almost as big as the art room. And I began to copy all of those paintings. So uh, between uh, copying comic strip characters and beginning to copy uh, the paintings of Stuart Davis. Th this was how I started. Well, I became president of the art club at Preston High School. Uh, professors from Utah State University would come and visit to judge our art contests, poster contests, etc. And so I got to know them and it was only 20 miles down the road. My father's farm went within about half mile of the Utah-Idaho border. So I became an art student at uh, Utah State University. Interestingly, my art uh, teacher, music teacher, Lyle Shipley, took me down to the university, introduced me to somebody in the president's office and said, this kid needs a job. And a, a week or so later, I got a call from what was the, it was a department store, uh, the C.C. Anderson's then, it became the Bon Marche. Uh, they needed a window displayment, and that was me. And I worked as a window displayment for four years. I had worked my way through Utah State University. In my uh, senior year, instead of student teaching, the art supervisor in Logan City uh, needed some release time, and they hired me to teach his one of his uh, junior high school art classes for the seventh graders. And so that was my first experience as an art teacher. Um, I, you know, we, in the one methods class I had in art education, we used Victor D'Amico's, what? Uh, it was something about the child mm -hmm. as an artist. And I had never heard of Lohenfeld until later. It was Victor D'Amico who was at the, uh, you know, taught child art at the Museum of Modern Art. Now this story is getting too long, but <clears throat> that was my uh, first uh, stint at art teaching. From Utah State, I uh, immediately, I, I had a commission in the US Army and uh, as an armor officer, uh, highly improbable, but it was uh, one way of trying to stay out of the Korean War that began in 1950. Um, and so I uh, applied to Cranbrook Academy of Art late for an MFA. I was accepted uh, and I told them I have to leave in this, uh, January of uh, 1957 uh, for my six months of active duty training. Well, at Cranbrook, so I, I was there for just uh, three semesters. I graduated in uh, May of what, 1958. But while I was at Cranbrook, when I needed money for paint, I would take a job substituting teach as an art teacher in the Detroit schools. They only did it for, I don't know, three, four or five times, something like that. But this gave me experience in some of the roughest schools in Detroit on how do you survive? Well, I was coupling that with my um, I, after I did armor officer basic training, then I trained 
did basic training for uh, young uh, armor officer recruits. And I was sort of combining my experience in Detroit with my experience with basic trainees in the army. And that was the kind of experience I had when I thought I was going to be a, a studio or a teacher in a college or university. And, uh, but I, uh, this, I was not interested in the jobs that they told me about at Cranbrook. Uh, you know, would you like to apply for this position in Kansas? And I said, I don't want to live in Kansas. And um, so I stopped in Salt Lake City. I was on my way to California and I took a job as an art teacher assigned to Jackson Junior High School. Uh, the the uh, lowest socioeconomic part of Salt Lake City. I had uh, Mexican-American students, a few black kids, and lots of poor uh, Caucasian kids. And I knew almost nothing about art education except that Victor D'Amico book. But what I did know, I assigned the kids. I said, okay, let's paint your city, but let's imagine your city in all kinds of times and day oh, through the day and at night and so on and the kids did absolutely marvelous uh, tempera paintings and um then the, the art supervisor, Maude Hardman, was retiring that year. She had picked her successor. He turned out to be a scoundrel, they found out. And then they, they needed an art supervisor. I mean, Salt Lake City had 64 schools. I was a first year teacher, <laughs> but the, the, the art supervisor started coming by and watching me teach. And then the associate superintendent came by and I thought, boy, they certainly uh, look carefully at <laughs> new art teacher. Then the superintendent came and watched me teach. And then I began to hear rumors. I was being considered for the job of the art supervisor. And I was, I mean, I, this first year teacher, I mean, it was a shock to everybody, especially to me, because I knew nothing about art education. Okay, now we have to make this story much shorter. I, uh, one of the first things I did as the art supervisor, I said, I'm going to visit every one of the 64 schools to see what art is like in this place. It was, dismal, it were design-oriented exercises, elements and principles of design. I came across in one of the elementary schools, I said, wow, that's what art is supposed to be. Uh, and I said to the teacher, where did you learn to do stuff like that? She said, I worked with Lohenfeld. It was Bev Krieger who ended up teaching, at, I think the University of Texas. But uh, th that was my introduction to to Lowenfeld. Uh, later in that year, Bev said, Lowenfeld is coming to town. He, he had been invited to speak at uh, Cal Taylor's Creativity Conference. And um, so uh, Bev Krieger and I spent a day with Victor Lowenfeld. And I talked with him about coming to Penn State to uh, work on my doctorate, told him what I wanted to do. I said, creativity drops off around fourth grade to what happens. Of course, that was a silly notion, but uh, uh, he, I remember him being so solicitous and encouraging. Well, I'm gonna end this story by saying 
to be the art supervisor, I had to get an administrative and supervisory certificate, which I didn't have. So I had to take some graduate level courses in education at the University of Utah. I took a class, Introduction to Research in Education, with Andrew Halpin, who was uh, an outspoken, he had been at the University of Chicago. Uh, they, he shot off his mouth too many times and he left for the University of Montana and then to the University of Utah. He didn't last long there, but he was really attuned to research. And actually, Elliot Eisner knew him as a matter of fact. Uh, Halpin said to me, there's a young guy at the University of Chicago doing some interesting work on creativity. And he handed me Elliot, a summary of Elliot Eisner's doctoral research. And I said, I like this stuff. And that's when I began to consider uh, you know, going to Penn State for a degree. They didn't accept, they accepted me into the master's degree program, but not the doctoral program because of my lack of background in education. I had uh, an MFA in studio, but they said, you don't have anything in art education. You have one methods course, that's it. Uh, so I said, well, you don't accept my uh, master's degree. I applied to Ohio State with Manny Barkin, whom I had met, uh, I think in 1962 at the NAEA conference in Miami. And that is now, you now know more about me than you ever wanted to know. But that's how I became a researcher in art education. N no plan at all, just stumbling from one thing to another to another. And that's been my career as well. No guiding <laughs> principle, take whatever comes along and see what you can do with it. Ren, I wonder if we could uh, stumble back to the uh, storeroom in your high school. I, uh, I'm trying to think when this was, it might've been 2009 or 2010. I was a grad student and Tina had asked that we interview someone whose work we admired. And I selected you, of course. And we spent considerable time that day talking about the storeroom. And I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more, like what was it about that storeroom? About, for example, the what did that teacher enable for you or make possible for you by setting aside that space for you to kind of explore your own interests and yet have the support of a teacher who was kind of nurturing those, those purposes? Well, let's start with the building. Uh, Preston High School had a building that was probably built in the 1930s, so it looked like a typical high school. But on the campus was an old 19th century building called the Oneida Stake Academy. It was a, a Mormon uh, academy and actually one of my uncles was the first president when the Oneida Stake Academy switched to public Preston High School. But this is the art room and the music room were the only two classes that were held in this academy building. Now, it has such historical significance. So one of my brothers who is interested in historical preservation, they were going to tear it down he raised the money to have this Oneida Stake Academy, a move from 
Preston High School grounds over to a park at the center of Preston, Idaho, a community of about four or 5,000 people. But it, the building has been preserved. Okay, so we go in up, up the, the steps of this lovely stone building, turn to the first door, I go through the two double doors, turn to the left, and there is a tiny art room with uh, a few rows of uh, uh, sort of tables and benches. But if you walk through, to go to the front of the room and turn left again, you go into this storeroom. As I said, there are three bay windows, quite large, uh, to the facing west, and, uh, uh, and it's maybe five or six feet, uh, maybe eight feet, uh, yeah, more like eight feet of space, and then uh, uh, there are shelves with art supplies, but here, I dragged in an easel. I worked on canvas board. I had bought sets of oil paint, you know, with the uh, you know the complete set with all of the colors, the brushes, and so on. And I, I had really studied the, the Emily Janauer's book, *The Best of Art*. It is really superb. I, I, if I were to walk over on my table, I have it open, and I have been doing a series of paintings based on the paintings, my memories of the paintings I did, copying Stuart Davis's style in that um, storeroom. Now, what Chris is. Uh, thought I was supposed to talk about with this question is this was a third site uh, because uh, well first site pedagogy is the kind of self-initiated stuff that kids do on their own second site was that classroom that we walked through where the teacher gave most of the students assignments and they completed them. and I, I completed some of his assignments too before he said okay you can do whatever you want um, and so it was a third site where it was a kind of collaboration where the, the uh, music, our teacher said, okay, go ahead and do whatever you want. Now, this was to his advantage as well, because every year Preston High School did an operetta. And this, uh, in my senior year, it was the Red Mill. And he had picked me out as the one who was going to paint the backdrop. And so he gave me release time from both choir and from the art room to, to paint the backdrop. And so it was a kind of continuation of the, the freedom he gave me uh, to, to paint it in the, uh, the storeroom, but also then he could say, all right, you got two free hours a day to paint the backdrop, which I probably, and I could recruit whatever kids I wanted to help me on it. I mean, it was, and that was a kind of third site as well. And so and when I think of all of the things that happened in my high school that were truly significant, it was like being president of the art club and meeting with the student council and asking for more funds for the uh, art club and being post so persuasive. I said, wow, the power of oratoria, I got the money. And, you know, so it's things like this where you're learning to live in the world uh, and to pursue your own interest. And so all three of these sites are tremendously important and they, there are relationships among them. But it's the third site that I think helps one to uh, live in the world because childhood art 
only lasts for childhood. And somebody who wants to live in the art world has to learn how to negotiate a life in the art world beyond the world of childhood and, and childhood art. And I'm going to promise to make shorter answers to the rest of your questions. <laughs> your long answers are perfectly acceptable and encouraged, Brent. Yeah, we love it. Um, Brent, so what was that uh, initially moved you to focus on the artistic practices of young people? Um, also, what was it about this work and practice of inquiry that managed to retain your, your focus for so many years? Um, <laughs> and, you know, I should add, so thoughtfully and effectively. Uh, here again, uh, how do I make a long story short? Uh, I started attending not only art education conferences, but conferences of the, uh, good heavens, now I'm having a mental block, but uh, the, what's the American Educational Research Association, I guess. And I started going into the meetings of the educational anthropologists. And I said, wow, that's really interesting. I like what they're doing because it was studying sort of the natural stuff. And uh, anthropologists wouldn't have to attend just the classrooms, but they could uh, attend to, to a larger context of education and to look at many different dimensions of it. So in 1971-72, um, I uh, took leave from the University of Iowa where, where I started teaching in 1966. And, um, I had decided that in uh, England, in addition to studying the uh, artworks and poetry of William Blake, I would try to engage in some sort of anthropological work. Almost uh, within a week or two, I met one of the students uh, who was on secondment in a kind of uh, post-baccalaureate uh, degree program who had established a very unusual uh, art classroom in secondary modern school. It was a kind of combination of a middle class, maybe upper middle class mid living room and a museum. And I said, and, and then I, I said, well, what happens to the students in this situation as I talk with the teacher? And he began to describe his students from a really working class background who had become quite prominent in uh, the English British art world, and I said, "Wow, could I could I follow up? Do you mind? Give me their names." And I started traveling around England, interviewing them. And uh, it was that this is when I really discovered the power of third sight, and I've written about the, the uh, all of the things that happened around that classroom. What changed people's lives was not just the unusual nature of the classroom, but the kinds of trips they took to stately homes, the kind of freedom the teacher gave. They didn't have to go to the morning assemblies and so on. So I said, when I get back to the U.S., I'm going to continue this anthropological-like study, and <clears throat> so. I can't remember quite how I uh, stumbled upon Williamsburg, Iowa, but um, I guess I had met one of the art teachers. And, and so I said, I'm gonna go and hang out around that classroom. And uh, so the teacher said, well, you ought to come up to our other classroom in a 
place, uh, a little town about four. Uh, we have a phantom cartoonist. And I said, well, no. <laughs> but he, he was persistent. I went up and this is where I discovered J.C. Holtz. And I wrote an article, uh, The Superheroes of J.C. Holtz, which was the kind of stuff that the kids were doing outside of school. So when I got up to that classroom uh, in this little school north of uh, Williamsburg, uh, here, the, the, this phantom cartoonist, he hadn't even told the other students who he was. He, he, he puts his stuff on the board, uh, you know, on a board outside the art classroom. And he said, if you want to see more, write a note. And the kids would say, yeah, more. And so he really had an audience that he had developed. Now, the reason J.C. Holtz could put his stuff on the board is because I had said to the art teacher, oh, you've put some of their own stuff. You know, he had let them put the informal stuff, you know, he taped a few of, of the, the drawings of cars and and uh, pretty girls and what have you. And the next time I went to the classroom, he had given the whole board, the, the display board from floor to ceiling over to the kids. The kids were coming in and slapping down on his desk. Here are the 10 I did last night. I mean, just by giving them the opportunity to, to, to display their self-initiated stuff. So it was a kind of collaboration you know, that I stumbled into between the art teacher and myself that led to my whole work. I said I was going to give a short answer, I can't. Uh, but to, to my whole study of the self-initiated art of children. And then sort of the capper to the story is that uh, Marge and I, well, I moved to Penn State in uh, the summer of 1974. Uh, Marge and I had already been communicating about her work in sort of third site stuff in uh, the Mass College of Art right after the Second World War. And uh, I could begin to see third site stuff developing in her classroom because I would leave Penn State they drive to uh, here to Nyack in this very building. March had an apartment. She was teaching at Tappan Zee High School about 10 miles away. And I would sit with her kids uh, in, in the art class uh, in a corner and I'd say, okay, draw for me the thing that you uh, uh, draw best. And then I said, where did you learn to draw that? They were always saying, oh, I learned that from a how to draw book. I learned that from this magazine. And, oh, that's a comic character that I adapted and so on. And this is led to Marge's and my iconoclastic view of the Imerigi sources of young people. And so this is the, the, the I mean, as you can see, there, there is this, this connection that one could not plan but just one thing leading to another, to another, to another, that led me to a, a study of children's self-initiated stuff. And then I keep saying, that's the end of the story. But what we noticed with the kids with the self-initiated stuff is there was a narrative underneath it. They were always telling a story. Sometimes it was a sequential story. Often, uh, you know, it was just one image around which they had created a story. And so this led us to doing those little six frames, tell us a story, show a, show a character and show what happens and what happens next and how things finally turn out that led to our collections of our collecting of children's story drawings from lots of countries around the world. Brent, one of the things that I'm, I'm interested to hear a little more about is 
at the time when there was so much focus on what children were doing. You were intimately attuned to how and why they were doing things. And I wonder if you could talk about like, what was it like to do that type of work at that time? Was it understood in the field? Was there pushback? Um, I mean, just maybe take us back a little bit to what it meant to notice these things that were significant regarding children's work and to not necessarily be afraid to work against the kind of normative narratives of the time and really give attention to something that's so significant for children's lives and practices. Well, I was thinking this morning, and I was trying to guess what we would be talking about. I pulled off my shelf a book and it says, Arti Bambini. Do you know how many years ago Corrado Ricci was on his way back from a Carthusian monastery in Bologna and it began to rain <laughs> and he sought refuge under a particle. And while he was waiting for the rain to subside, he was looking, he looked at the children's drawings and he said, eh, the ones up above are quite ordinary, but the ones down below, ooh, they're really interesting. This was 140 years ago. Art di Bambini was the first study of child art. I, I mean, what we came to call child art. But then, as I was imagining, uh, here is a rebound book of Kirschensteiner's study of German children's drawings in 2000, uh, uh, 1909. And then Chizek and Child Art. It's written by Wilhelm Viola, but uh, uh, published by the Red Cross. Okay, what we saw happening here is really interesting that the first child art that was discovered, and of course, uh, it, it was uh, Corrado Ricci seeing what the kids had done spontaneously on the walls. And then, curiously, it was uh, Franz Chizek in Austria, who also, when he was uh, living with uh, a family, and he looked out his window and saw the children drawing on a wall or a fence opposite to his window. And he was intrigued because he saw them actually fighting for a space to draw. And, but with Chizik, something happened. He said, okay, there's real vitality. I see what the kids are doing. He tried to capture it and he did. And he put it into the classroom and he started asking, instead of giving them rules and uh, uh, here are the rules of art and you'll learn basic design and you know, the, uh, follow through or some sort of academic training and learning how to draw. He let the kids or he encouraged the kids to draw from their own experience. And it became child art because even though it was seen as the art of children, it was really a kind of collaboration. And Lowenfeld comes directly out of Chizik. And uh, all of, you know, it was picked up in, in Britain. Um, Herbert Reed and uh, what is it? Uh, the Children as Artists by Tomlinson. 
And uh, then here, this, uh, this is a US book, but it says, let the child draw. Is that what it says? Yes, it says, let the child draw. <laughs> okay. Um, and so child art became what teachers assigned them to do in classrooms. Well, what I began to see with J.C. Holtz was sort of taking it back almost to uh, for Corrado Ricci 140 years ago and to attending to what children initiated on their own for their own purposes rather than what we as adults think are children's purposes. And, uh, now, I love school child art and uh, Art Eflin with his article on the, the uh, school art style really helped us to, to see the difference between the, the stuff he initiated, the spontaneous stuff the kids do on their own and what teachers get them to do. Well, <clears throat> so uh, I didn't even know that I was uh, sort of uh, kicking against the pricks, as we might say, uh, at, at that time. It was simply, I saw what J.C. Holtz was doing, and uh, I, I saw it as authentic and really more exciting than anything that I had seen a teacher have kids do, maybe forever. And uh, so, uh, now, when the article came out, um, a bunch of art educators and some artists wrote me saying, hey, this is how I learned to become an artist. I started out drawing uh, comic strips and cartoons and comic characters, and then I transitioned into fine art in one way or another. Uh, there were a few art educators who were bothered by it. Uh, and interestingly, this is where Rudolf Arnheim came in because, well, what I, the background of all of this is that child art, school uh, school child art, was so tied to modernism that uh, that the ideas, I mean, what you paint comes out of you, you know, from art from deep down inside, and any imposition or influence from outside the individual is bad. And especially if children are copying cartoon characters or learning how to draw from magazines and what have you, that's bad because it's drawing them away from their true nature, uh, what, what is intrinsic and internal to them. And so, I mean, I, I, I still don't think we understand fully the power that modernism had on the creation of school child art. And I, without realizing it, I had begun to question that dominant paradigm. And for me, it was not so much the ideological notions, although uh, Marge's and my uh, iconoclastic view paper did become that. But you see, then Rudolf Arnheim, who was the major proponent of child art outside of education, I mean, Gestalt psychologist, drew, uh, wrote an article in which he criticized 
what we were doing, what Marge and I had done. Uh, and we, he said, you're going to turn uh, art education back to 19th century drill and you're exhuming old mummies. I mean, it was an absolutely marvelous article that he wrote and it was published against uh, our iconoclastic view paper. So this made it, turned it into a real uh, ideological struggle in, in one way. And I think that's probably what we're, we have sitting here, uh, three full generations of the study of child art. I, and if you want to count the day that I spent with Victor Lowenfeld, I'm one of the few people alive, uh, even though I didn't study with him, I spent a day with him. And uh, so uh, I see Tina as following the generation behind me. And you you know all of, you knew all of you picked up on all of the cultural influences, but then you did something very different from what I was doing. You began to look at what kids were doing during this process. I mean, all all of the things that were going through their minds and the things that were happening as they were making. And then Chris, you picked up on that and uh, and, and carried it further. And uh, you see, I, so I don't think there was any distinct plan that any of us had in our mind, but we were just following what we saw that that, that was true. <laughs> That's a trite word perhaps in this sense, but we were seeing that kids were doing authentic stuff and it was important to them and they were educating themselves. I mean, it was first sight pedagogy that was so tremendously important. And uh, and it was sort of being ignored in the second side and encouraged and facilitated in the third side. And you've now discovered that I have no short answer. <laughs> <laughs> so. We already knew that, Brent. <laughs> so one of the things last semester um you and marge were generous enough to talk to my undergraduate class at school of the art institute and one of the things that you said um when we ran out of time was that you had wanted to talk a little bit about how um your research and my research were differently focused um, and how they related to one another and how they were different and how they, um, how they were equally important and essential to understanding um, child art. Um, could you expand on that a little bit? Well, I saw us, I'm not sure what I said at the time, but I saw my research as a kind of macro view where I, I think it was the research that I did in Egypt. I had a, a student from Egypt, Nabil El Husseini, and uh, he was going back to Egypt. I said, well, bring some story drawings back. And he did, and wow, the style was very different from anything I'd seen in the US. We had another, student at Penn State, uh, Mitsui Nagamachi. He was going back to Japan. He said, can I bring you something for Japan? I said, yeah, take some of these sheets and bring some story, drawing back, uh, story drawings back. And when he brought them back, 
again, they were different from anything I see. I could see that they came from comic books, but I didn't know the comic books. I had no, I, I had never encountered manga. And so this must have been in the, I don't know, probably, uh, probably 1978 or 79 that I got the uh, Japanese drawings. And that's when I uh, said, I got to get to Japan and collect story drawings. It wasn't until 1982 that I went to Egypt. But then I began to compare th these two cultures, which were so different, because in Egypt, I could, uh, there, there were such amazingly different sites where I could collect children's story drawings. So I could go to Zomalik, to baby home, where the kids spoke English in their classroom as well as Arabic. They had access to Western picture books and comic books and what have you. Then I could go to Mbaba, to an impoverished section in Cairo, not so far from Zamalek, but not an island in the Nile, and collect the stories from them. And then I could go to Nahia, which was a village. You go down toward the pyramids in Giza and then turn to the right and go a few more kilometers. And there is Nahia, where uh, they have television. But the school books were in Arabic and there were no pictures in them. So the only visual stuff that the kids had was fast moving images on television or the kinds of drawings that other kids and adults had drawn on walls. So here were these unique settings within a sort of a 40 square kilometer area that I was collecting drawings from. And then in Japan, I literally in 19... 87, traveled from the bottom of Kyushu to the top of Hokkaido, collecting Japanese children's story drawings. And uh, so now what I found is even when I went to isolated mountain villages in Hokkaido, manga was still there. So I was studying macro, the culture that I, uh, I had drawings from Europe, from Africa, from Australia, where I collected them myself. And uh, each one of them has distinct cultural differences. And I'll just mention how these, within the, these are broad macro-cultural differences, but uh, Kayad Amer, who did his doctorate at Penn State, studied Bedouin children's drawings. And we were looking at the drawings and I said, Kayed, the children's, the, the girls' drawings are very different from the boys' drawings. Aren't they in the same classroom? He said, oh, no, they're in different classrooms. There were micro-cultural characteristics of the girls' drawings that were different from the boys' drawings, even in this larger culture. So we could see, well, I also did uh, studies of the drawings that Florence Goodenough had collected for the Draw Mantis. And uh, these are the archives that are in Penn State that uh, with uh, Dale Harris, I saw that Dale Harris had them said, Dale, we have to get these into an archive. You can go and see them. You can see that kids who came from Italy, their drawings had the same characteristics that I was noticing in the, the, the drawings 
uh, uh, Corrado Ricci. I mean, so here, uh, some of the Ricci drawing characteristics had continued on into the 1920s. Well, Marge and I studied the decline of the two-eyed profile. Here is just one feature that was so prominent in children's drawings at, at, at the, the beginning of the, well, the end of the uh, uh, 1900s, I mean, 1800s and into the beginning of the 1900s and then disappeared when other cultural influences like illustrated books and what have you changed. So it was studying the big stuff uh, that uh, was the focus of my character. I said, I think it was important to do, but you were studying the, the micro as I saw it. Equally important, uh, they, uh, they complement one another. They complement one another beautifully, I might say. When, when I said that the, you two are continuing the tradition that Lohenfeld started at Penn State, I, I don't know, is it still there? I, I, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, because I, uh, I don't have the answer to my question, but uh, it, it's alive at the University of Arkansas and I am so delighted that it is. Definitely. Very important. And I, I wonder if I could just ask one more question. When you think across, apologize. Oh, the, there they the are. The <laughs> started again in the office above me. When you think across the landscape of research that, that you've generated uh, over your career, are there certain ideas or qualities that no matter what continue to hold up to carry value and purpose? And I'm thinking of, for example, the what you've always talked about, the story drawings, the, the, the way in which art provides young people an opportunity to kind of activate that narrative impulse, as you would say. I wonder if there's, if, what, what are those like, those consistent ideas and qualities that are so uh, important to young people's work that no matter what, just continue to bubble up and have value? Well, here, I go to the work of Hans and Schulamit Kreitler. Um, very early and uh, soon after Marge and I were married and I would spend my weekends here in Nyack and we went to a conference at uh, NYU where Howard Gardner from Harvard had, uh, was a speaker. And uh, so we had a nice conversation, got acquainted with him. And then we began to do our, our first story drawings were collected in Brookline. Uh, Marge's parents lived uh, in uh, Boston. And so it was convenient for us to go up and start a project with David Baker in the, uh, the Brookline schools. But uh, Howard Gardner said, well, uh, I was talking with him about the work of Hans and Chilamet Kreitler. And he said, oh, the Kreitlers are in residence this year at Harvard. And uh, I was delighted because I had encountered their book, The Psychology of Art. And it, I think it may be chapter 20, whatever it is. Uh, if I look at my copy of the book, uh, I look at that chapter and the, the 
the pages in the, the narrow strip of that chapter are sort of darkened because I have been through that chapter so many times. But it's called the more in art, and uh, you know it's the cognitive function of art. And here they were saying that art deals with four dimensions of reality: the reality of self, the common reality, a normative reality of good, bad, good and evil, uh, and uh, the prophetic reality. And I see children's story drawings and most artists work at least most artists figurative work dealing in some way or another with those four dimensions of reality my own work uh going back to the exhibition that i'm preparing with my 10 decades i actually start with a set of folios that are, are entitled before birth i have my grandfather uh, uh, this is my Mormon background, gave me a blessing when I was 16. And he said, he was prophesying. He said, you came to this earth to parents that you chose. And I said, why in the world did I choose them? Poor uh, isolated mountain, uh, high mountain valley, not where I grew up in Fairview, but it was even worse. Uh, it was uh, Lund, Idaho, settled by the Swedes uh, and uh, sort of between uh, Soda Springs and Grace and Pocatello and Lava Hot Springs. Uh, it's an awful place. And that my father was from there. My grandfather was a contractor and he wanted to buy a farm. He wasn't a farmer by nature, but rather a, a contractor engineer, but he bought a farm and a mountain. And that's where I was born. My uh, parents were married and uh, lived with the, his parents in Lund, Idaho. Uh, why there? I mean, that's the worst place <laughs> to end up. But then my, uh, I start saying, why am I telling you the story? Well, I uh, each of these decades in which I have folios are about life. I told you about the Sandhill House, and then uh, the the 40s are, are swimming in Bear River, at where I connect the kind of sand sculptures of women that I was making on the banks of Bear River, likening them to the work of Anna Mendieta at the University of Iowa. She was my student when I first arrived there, and uh, I. I must confess, I said, oh, she can't draw. What did I know? <laughs> she didn't need to draw. Uh, and it was actually her encounter with Hans Brader that led her to the kind of thing where she was expressing, what does it mean to be a refugee? What does it mean to be a Cuban woman? What does it mean to be a woman? I mean, her stuff is so powerful. Well, I was in, in my folios, I'm connecting my work to the, the student in, in, in the 40s. Then I moved to the 50s as Stuart David. Every one of these things is a story of my life. In, in the 80s, I have a whole series of folios of my going to the city of the dead in Cairo, the poorest kids. Uh, their, their parents came out of the countryside to Cairo. Uh, no place to live. They moved into this cemetery where 
the, the tombs are actually houses, like houses, and the bodies are buried below, but they're, they're sort of empty houses. The, the fellaheen moved in. The kids had no money. What do they do? They dipped their fingers in mud and crank case oil and scratched with rocks. Uh, I have a set of folios about that. It's my life, but it's my life. Uh, 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 but where I'm making meaning of my life by seeing the meaning that others make through their artworks. It's telling our stories. And as we tell our stories, we're telling other stories, others' stories. Thank you, Brent. All right, uh, Brent, thank you so much for sharing, uh, taking the time to be with us today um, and for so generously sharing about your life and work. Um, it was a great pleasure to be with you and to think with you. Um, additionally, we would like to thank Tina for agreeing to join us today for this special interview with Brent. As always, we are appreciative of your generosity and the care you bring to this work. Thank you. Next time on Chatted Art, we sit down with Dr. Tyson Lewis, Professor of Art Education at the University of North Texas. Until then, please visit our website for additional updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchatteredart.com. Thank you. <laughs>